0: When did we all start talking about climate change? Was it the 2000s? The 1990s? When did it first seep into public attention? There were lots of good scientists trying for decades, but if you want to read the one book that put climate change on the global agenda, it's none other than The End of Nature. Today's Changemaker Chat is with its author, Bill McKibben. Bill is a rare breed. He is a writer and a fighter. He has spent as much time producing magnificent prose as he has standing on the front lines of environmental and climate battles, prosecuting change. One of his greatest legacies was the first global climate grassroots group, 350. It provided a way for people to take their fear and concern and project it into national and global debates. Today, we talk about his story and how he's combined two very different ways of being to make the impossible possible. We also talk about his latest movement, Third Act, where he's working with older people to organise them, their passion and their resources to be part of the climate fight. Bill's new book, The Flag, The Cross and the Station Wagon, published by Henry Holt Books, is out now. It's part memoir and part political treatise. I've also included details about the Third Act and 350. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Hello, Bill McKibben. Welcome to the Changemakers podcast.
1: What a pleasure to be with you from the other side of the world. This is good fun for me.
0: I'm delighted to be able to have a conversation with you. Indeed, I I would have to go so far to say I'm pretty honored to be able to have this conversation. So thank you for joining us.
1: Back at you. Thank you for your work.
0: (laughs) No, no. I am excited to get into your story. So, but before we begin on a, a sort of quick travel through a life of change making that you have led. How I, I want you to describe for our listeners in your own words. You know, this is the Change Makers podcast. You know, you've done a lot of different types of change making, ways of enacting social change. How would you describe the kind of change maker that you are?
1: I would say, <laughs> distinctly amateur and <laughs> making it up as uh, I go along. <laughs> right. Tell me more about the
0: way in which you think you've been doing that over time. Like, how, how have you come to that kind of change making? Like,
1: tell us a little bit more about it. You know, I began my life very much as a writer. And that's one way of important way of making change is uh, uncovering things and and putting them out there in a way that people can understand and and think about and absorb, and over time, I've become, as I say, amateur volunteer <laughs> uh, organizer in a more traditional way, um, building big organizations and campaigns uh, around the world, but uh, but I've, I have to say, somewhat haphazardly and without any real training in how to do any of this, um, so Take it for what it's worth.
0: Well, part of me feels like anyone who thinks they've got it mastered in a world that's going so far backwards is probably kidding themselves anyway. But let's—I would like you to unpack your story a little, a little bit more. You know, I—I I like uh, everyone else who's re- listening to this podcast has just read your most recent book, which is uh, is part memoir. And I know that you were a writer from a very young age. You've described that as a form of change making. Can you can you unpack that? How How is writing for you a form of change-making and how did it become such an important part of your life from such a young age?
1: Well, at first it was not a form of change-making at all. Uh, I I began my uh, professional writing career at 13 or 14 covering junior high and high school basketball and soccer and football and whatever else. Uh, And by the time I was into high school, I was writing regularly for the local newspaper. I got paid 25 cents a column inch, which may explain why I tend to go on sometimes. And. Uh, I was covering city council and so on and so forth. I went to college, and really all I did in college was work for the newspaper, the college newspaper, which came out six days a week. And I was in charge of city hall, and, uh, uh, you know, I covered presidential elections and so on and so forth. And by the time I got out of college, I really didn't know how to do anything else, you know? So... Um, I I think in that sense, my life was kind of fated to go in a certain direction. And I began work as a young man uh, of 21 at uh, the New Yorker magazine in New York, writing the talk of the town column and, and alternating every other week, writing the kind of lead editorial in the New Yorker. And the guy that I was alternating with was a brilliant, brilliant writer, and thinker named Jonathan Schell, most famous for his book, The Fate of the Earth, which is probably the most important book about nuclear weapons, Uh, uh, that and John Hersey's Hiroshima. And so I I started learning about how to make an argument and and think about it and so on. Uh, And those skills came in handy when in my mid to late 20s, I researched and wrote a, a my first book, a book called The End of Nature, which was also the first book for a general audience about what we now call climate change and what we then called the greenhouse effect.
0: (laughs) And can I ask, like, I mean, End of Nature, don't understate it. It's like one of the most important books in the world on climate change. Um, And it's an extraordinary read for those who are listening who haven't read it. Why did you settle on wanting to write a book about climate change? And the ch- and the change that it w- that we would, we as people were making to our natural environment.
1: Uh, at first, it was highly uh, sort of journalistic instinct. That this was the most important story in the world, or would be, and that it was going largely uncovered. I had written a long piece for The New Yorker about where everything in my apartment came from. I followed, you know, the, the utility was buying oil from Brazil. So I went to Brazil and up into the Arctic where they were getting hydropower and off to the Grand Canyon where they were getting uranium for their nuclear power plant. And I was off on the, you know, far reaches of New York City's water supply system which stretches for hundreds of miles and out with the barges that were dumping garbage and uh, you know on and on and on I think what that piece that that was the first long piece I wrote for the New Yorker I think what it set me up to do was understand that the world was a more physical place than I had imagined I'd grown up in the suburbs the suburbs are a kind of machine for hiding The operations of the world from you. No one has any idea where their water comes from, or you know anything like that. Uh, And so it was kind of a revelation for me to realize that even a place like Manhattan, that seems able to mint money out of thin air, was exquisitely dependent on the safe operation of the planet's physical systems. And I think that that allowed me, as I read the early science on climate change, to have a more a more informed reaction than a lot of people did uh, right from the get-go because I, I knew that these were real, delicate, vulnerable, fragile systems that were being suddenly challenged by this huge, huge change in the Operating conditions of our planet.
0: So what I, I mean that is a really int- So it's the writing process and the rigor of the writing process in a way. This analytical, but also um, this sort of intense curiosity that comes with great with a great writer to be able to find the story and track the story. That you ha- you placed it on this question that it opened opened up this political issue in a sense. Yes, that's correct.
1: But uh, the problem was as I wrote The End of Nature, it became clear to me that I was not an objective journalist in the sense that I, I, we were sort of encouraged to be, at least back then. Like, I really cared whether or not we wrecked this beautiful world or not. <laughs> and so it was something in me shifted in the course of that. And I was no longer fit for, you know, sort of beat reporting straight up, you know, I, the New York Times tried to hire me at one point to go to work there, and I just remember thinking, "This will not work." Um, I, 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 I've, at some level, I want this story to come out one way, <laughs> and 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 that feeling grew over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And and look, I don't know exactly when it was, but in, in the end of nature, you write about moving, and placing yourself, like living in a much more natural environment than Manhattan.
1: Yes, and this was important. Was that connected to this journey? That was very connected, Amanda. um, When I was 26 or 27, I quit the New Yorker, 26, I guess, and moved out to the Adirondack Mountains, which are the great wilderness of the American East, a quite vast area along the Canadian border in upstate New York. Uh, It's an area bigger than Glacier and Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Yosemite combined. So uh, very, very large the only western-scale wilderness in the American East, and very, very wild. And I loved it. I fell in love with it head over heels and just was spending all my time out hiking and canoeing and skiing through this vast wilderness. And that explains some of the reason that uh, the climate change story hit me with such emotional force, because I quickly came to think that the implication of what we were doing was that this place that I loved so much for its wildness was not as wild as uh, I or anybody else had imagined. That is to say, we were changing it. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, the great American writer of the 19th century, once wrote that he could walk a half hour from his house and come to a place where no one, no man stands from one year to a next and therefore politics are not for politics are but the cigar smoke of a man well i could walk 5 minutes from my house and come to places i don't think anybody else but me had ever stood but if we were changing the flora and the fauna of that place then was it really wild in quite the way that I had imagined? Um, And was any place on a rapidly heating earth wild in that sense? Because it clearly was human activity that was making these places different now.
0: How did writing and publishing End of Nature change you? How did it in particular, how did it launch you into the next part of your career?
1: You know, because of perhaps just accidents of timing or something the book was extraordinarily successful it ended up being published in i don't know 24 languages or something and and selling you know being a sort of best selling book in uh, around the world and so first thing it did was uh make me enough money that i could keep writing books um, and the second thing it did was give me a sort of platform. If you write one book and it's successful, then they let you write another one. <laughs> and, and, and another one and another one. <laughs> yes. And so I, I wrote more books. And, <laughs> and for a few years, that's really what I did, uh, wrote and wrote and wrote, because that's what I like to do. I'm a writer, and that's what comes easily to me. Um, I mean, it's hard work, but it's work that I'm good at and that I enjoy. But at a certain point, it became clear to me that writing more books about climate change was not going to move the needle, uh, or at least not enough. Books are important, words are important, but the problem here was that because I was a writer, I I viewed the situation as an argument, a rational argument. Uh, that one would win by piling up more evidence and more facts and uh, explaining them in e- ever better terms, and eventually our leaders would come to their senses and we would do the right thing. But at a certain point, and it really took me too long to figure this out, I think, and I kick myself for that sometimes, it was clear to me that we'd won the argument. The science was abundantly clear. Every scientist was saying basically the same thing. The IPCC had spoken eloquently and with consensus. We'd won the argument. We were just losing the fight because the fight wasn't actually about data and reason and evidence and so on. The fight was about what fights are almost always about, uh, money and power. And there was another side in this fight, the fossil fuel industry, and they had so much money and hence so much power that they could afford to lose the argument and still go on doing what they were doing. And so it became clear to me over time that if we were going to take them on in a serious way, if we were gonna have a chance in that fight, that we needed to build power. And power couldn't... So what did you do, Pio? <laughs> power couldn't come from, in this case, money. We were never gonna have enough money to challenge Exxon. So history indicates that the only other place it might come from is people, is bodies, you know. is I'll, I'll tell you, the first time I tried to organize anything And this will give you a sense of just how clueless I was. I'd come back from Bangladesh, and I'd been there during their first big outbreak of dengue fever and watched a ton of people die. I'd gotten bit by the wrong mosquito because I was spending a lot of time in the slums, so I got dengue. But, you know, I was healthy going in, so I was just miserably sick, but I didn't die. And I remember thinking how unfair it all was. You know, uh, Bangladesh is a rounding error in carbon emissions. 200 million people or so but they don't produce any carbon uh, you know and coming back home to the states where we produce 25 percent of the world's carbon i mean thank god they're for australia there's somebody ahead of us in per capita emissions but uh, you know the u.s is the biggest source <laughs> of this problem I, I wanted to do more so i i live out in the sticks and in, in, by this time in vermont so I just called up a few of my writer friends and said, let's go up to Burlington, which is our main city, and we'll do a sit-in on the steps of the federal building in town, and we'll get arrested, and at least there'll be a little story in the paper, and we will have done something. Uh, and all the writer friends were, you know, were as clueless as me, and they were all, oh, well, good, let's do it. Um, but one of them happily called up to the police in Burlington said, what will happen if we do this intrepid stunt? And uh, the police said, Duh nothing will happen <laughs> stay there as long as you want <laughs> oh, um, no. And, and, no reaction and oh, so we were God. like uh we better recalibrate so i sent out a letter just asking people to come for a march and we left one afternoon from the writing cabin of the great old american poet robert frost who's kind of the patron saint of Vermont. And we walked for five days up the side of Vermont to Burlington. And we slept in farm fields along the way. And I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher. So I called up all the churches, make sure there'd be potluck suppers for people to eat and so on. And we got to Burlington and there's a thousand people there on hand, which in Vermont's a lot of people. Bernie Sanders, then our Congressman and an old friend met us at the outskirts of Burlington, and he was so excited because he's a big organizer. And he was like, this is great. I haven't seen this many people since Vietnam days. This is so great. I love it. What's this about again? Um, And, you know, it uh, it was great in one sense. But then the paper the next day, and this was 2006, said that this thousand people was probably the biggest demonstration that had yet taken place in the U.S. about climate change. And when I read that, I thought, whoa, no wonder we're losing. We've got the superstructure of a movement here. We've got Al Gore and a bunch of scientists and smart policy people and stuff. We've got everything you need for a movement except the movement part. There's no one there. So that's really when we started plotting what became 350.org. When I say we, I mean me and seven students at Middlebury College where I Taught. So we had no experience and no idea what we were doing, which was probably just as well, uh, because, you know, our basic plan was essentially ludicrous. You know, we would organize the world around climate change. There were seven students. There are seven continents. Each one took one. The guy who got the Antarctic was also responsible for the internet, you know. So off we went to organize. (laughs) There were a very few places where there were people to organize with, uh, pre-existing allies. Australia was one. The Australia Youth Climate Coalition was maybe our very first partner, you know. Around the world, we found other people. There was a, a kind of unfilled ecological niche you know. And so a year or two later, we were able to have the first big global day of action around climate change. We coordinated about 5,200 simultaneous demonstrations in 181 countries. Most of them weren't big, 100, 200, 300, 400 people. There was a big crowd at the Sydney Opera House that was did a wonderful job. But it was it was a kind of coming out day for a global movement around climate change. And since then, you know, 350, uh, we, we spearheaded a lot of big fights around big pipelines and this fossil fuel divestment movement and on and on and on. But really, the you know, in some ways, the biggest success of all those things was that it more and more and more people kept flooding into movement building and so pretty soon there was extinction rebellion and the sunrise movement and you know then there was greta and all the high school and junior high school kids all over the world and on and on and on and happily now there's a big broad movement around climate change where there was nothing really uh, you know when we began so as i say beginner's luck and unfilled ecological niche. And I'm very glad that it worked out as well as it did.
0: (laughs) And I mean, when I listen to you tell the story, I I can't help but think of two things in terms of your experience of it. One is this unusual journey from being a writer to becoming a fighter. And I I guess I'm wondering what you had to to manage in yourself, to to change roles like that? They're pretty different spaces in the world. How did, how, how did that journey work for you?
1: Well, it was in some ways quite scary for me, especially at first because journalists are sort of trained not to take sides exactly or get involved in things to be a player. We're much more used to writing about others doing things and I I much prefer that and that's mostly what I do now but there was a period of time when it seemed necessary to kind of step into that active role to be that player. I remember the first time I got arrested in doing civil disobedience and that was really crossing a certain kind of Rubicon uh, uh, for a journalist and it was it scared me, I, you know, I was giving up a way of life that I knew and that I'd been successful at, and I knew that I could have an impact doing, just because I thought we needed to to have a different kind of impact. As it turns out, I've been able to keep on doing journalism. I write a lot, in some ways more than I ever did. It all is, you know, comes with the acknowledgement always that I'm a, a participant, too, in this fight. but. It's, it, 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 I've been lucky in, in my ability to continue to do both these things. I wasn't sure that that would be the case when I began, and so it took a lot of conversations with myself at that point.
0: And in a way, I mean, I work at a university and we have a similar conversation about do you need to be separate from things to to be able to observe and write about them or or to make policy about them, research about them or or actually are we all participants, right? Like we're all participants. There is objectivity is is, is not as dressed up as as being separate. And perhaps your journey, I don't know, to me, it's, it shows the way in which there's a sort of recognition that actually you can write about things. You can produce powerful, evidence-based, you know, journalism or, or, or other forms of writing and be a participant. It's a different way of doing that work. Yes.
1: And it's gotten easier to do that over time. And that's, I think, mostly a good thing. I'm, truthfully, I'm glad that I was raised in the other world because I learned to do really rigorous kind of journalism, you know, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm also grateful for the world we live in now. One of the things that makes me very happy and has made my life much better is the sense that now there are lots and lots of other people doing much the same kind of work. When I, you know, in the 90s and early aughts, You know, if there was a big article in the U.S. press about climate change, there was a roughly 70 percent chance that I'd written it. That, A, wasn't good journalistically, really. And B, I mean, it just it was like being in one of those nightmares where you can see a monster coming, but you can't get anybody else to see it and you can't get them to turn around and, you know, whatever. It felt pretty weirdly lonely for a long time. And so I, every day that goes by, I'm extremely grateful for all the people writing and doing podcasts and making documentaries and, you know, on and on and on. And truthfully, a great deal of my time now is just spent trying to point people in the direction of other people's good work.
0: But I also here, I mean, like one of the, like, tell me more about your reflections on the power of 350, but I, I, I also am interested in your, your earlier reflection, which just is actually being an outsider, you know, making the impossible possible maybe is easily, more easily done by people who don't know the space as well. Like, tell me about your reflections. And the 350 has been around a long time now.
1: I think that that's very true, that... <laughs> We were well-served by not knowing much about what we were doing. Our our ambitions were not tempered by a sense of what was impossible. And so the stuff we did was quite unlikely in in a lot of ways. I mean, this was very large-scale organizing that we were accomplishing on on a shoestring and without experience. Uh, And I think that part of it was that made it successful was, A, people caught on to that and sort of knew that it you know that we needed lots of help and b by necessity we hit on the what turned out to be very smart thing of just empowering everybody that we were working with to do what they kind of wanted to do it was really like throwing up potluck dinner. Do you have potluck dinners in Australia? I don't know what you...
0: No, but we watch enough American television to know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Just means everybody brings a dish to the dinner and shares them.
0: Yeah. So there's this distributed capacity, right? Everyone has to step up. I also feel like even for today's would-be climate leaders, you know, would-be climate activists, there's such an empowering message that you can actually just give it a go. You know what I mean? Like there's, that doesn't need to be anything in our way.
1: What was quite amazing was everybody just rose to the occasion. So we just told everybody, use our logo, use the, you know, here's the date, just do what you want. And nobody did anything stupid. Everybody did great stuff, you know. I mean, and, and I'm talking. I mean, I think we, we think we've organized at 350 about 20,000 demonstrations around the world in every country except North Korea. And really, it's been without people doing anything stupid. It, it was. It's been a hugely beautiful. One of the things that really struck me that I remember very much that first weekend of the, with those 5,200 actions around the world, and it was really before Facebook and Twitter had settled in, but our killer app was something called Flickr that let people share photographs. And so we told everybody, upload a picture of this thing and send it in right away so we can share them out. And so my job was just, as people were sending those in, 20 and 30 a minute sometimes from around the world to kind of be compiling them. And I'd always been told that environmentalism was something that rich white people did. And if you didn't care, if you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, you wouldn't care about the environment you know, wouldn't be a priority. And it took about 20 minutes of watching these photos come in from around the world to realize that that was just nonsense, that most of the people we were working with were poor, black, brown, Asian, and young, because that's what most of the people in the world are. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what do you know? They were exactly as concerned about the future as I was, you know? Maybe even more so, because if you're in a lot of those places, the future bears down really hard on you, you know? So... That was completely revelatory and useful and changed my sense of things. It also just, it allowed us to just think like, why not? So a couple of years later, we helped start this fight about the Keystone Pipeline in the States. And there were indigenous groups had been working on it up in Canada in the tar sands and a few farmers and ranchers in the middle of the country but it hadn't become an issue about climate change really and it hadn't become a national issue i was curious my sense was that we'd built enough of a movement that there now would be people ready to do civil disobedience but we didn't know so I wrote a letter that we got a bunch of other people to sign asking people to come to Washington and get arrested and the number of people who showed up dramatically exceeded our expectations it became the biggest civil disobedience action in America in a number of years and it was enough to kick off this fight which nobody thought at the beginning would be successful uh, but it, it it, you know, we got it going. And then again, people just took it over, you know, and did work. And and eventually we won. But the real victory was that it just in demonstrating that people had some chance of standing up to these guys. And pretty soon people were fighting every pipeline and every coal mine and every fracking well. And we were winning a fair number of them and causing big problems for this industry everywhere. That emboldened us to think, well, maybe we should also be going after the kind of money behind this stuff. And so the next year, uh, really, Naomi Klein and I kind of dreamed up what became this fossil fuel divestment movement. And again, we had no real reason to think it would succeed. We didn't know, but we worked it hard for a year or two, did all these roadshows around the world, including Australia and New Zealand, to kind of kick it off. But then again, everybody just kind of took it over on their own and fought it out in 10,000 places around the world. And it turned into a huge thing. I think we're at about $40 trillion now in endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel. And so I, I, I say all this just to say it was very useful not to know our limitations and you know it's I'm very glad that there are deeply experienced and much much savvier organizers around the world but I'm also kind of glad that we didn't know any more than we did when we started out
0: like it's holding those two things in tension to hold in tension the writer with the with the the passionate potential activist, right? hold intention the the naive but passionate we have to change everything now with the experience like yes. I, I feel like I, I hear that in your story throughout this idea of there's these t- different impulses and we just need to connect them to create the kind of the kind of movement and power that we need.
1: yes, I think that that's right. Well, of course, one of the great things has been that the movement has broadened so much as i say right from the beginning it was you know all kinds of people all over the world and much more diverse than people thought environmentalism was supposed to be or something but happily now a huge amount of the you know just core leaderships coming from all kinds of communities uh and and that's really been fun to watch.
0: And this is something I want to turn the conversation to, where the movement is organized because this is what you're working on now, Bill. You're you're uh, now, you know, a climate elder, and (laughs) as a lifelong organiser, you've now taken it upon yourself to organise the gang of people you grew up with, and some of whom are a little bit older, so people over 60, and you call this movement The Third Act, Mm. and in in true Bill McKibben style, you've you've written a new book Mm -hmm. (laughs) to describe the political philosophy that sits behind the movement. I I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the whys and hows. I mean, part of me wonders um, what came first. Like, was it the the idea of the movement or the idea for the book? Like, how did you come to realise this is needed?
1: So, partly it's because so much of my work has been with young people, starting 350 and then, you know, the kids on campuses across... uh, Everywhere who cut their teeth as organizers doing fossil fuel divestment work and then turned into like the Sunrise Movement in the States and brought us the Green New Deal, and then getting to know Greta and the other 10,000 Greta's around the world that are, you know, amazing. And so I was highly cognizant of the fact that young people were and are in the lead here and doing a great job. But it began to like. Bother me that we were taking the most difficult problem in the world and kind of handing it over to seventeen-year-olds, and you know, saying, "Okay, <laughs> your job now." You know, it's all yours. <laughs> it's like it's like yeah. some you know between algebra homework and field hockey practice. Would you mind also saving the world? You know, and and that uh, just seemed ignoble and also impractical, um, um, because structurally, young people don't have sufficient power to do, you know, what needs to happen. It may be nobody has enough power, but Older people are going to be a necessary part of this. So, in the U.S., which is where we've begun organizing this, there are 70 million people over the age of 60. So that's a population larger than France. They vote in huge numbers. In America, of course, voting is voluntary, and so uh, lots of people, young people, don't vote. Um, and. All old people vote. (laughs) And so that 70 million people is, you know, in political terms, more like 140 million people or something just because they vote so much. And they ended up with all the money, fairly or not. You know, 70% of the financial assets in America belong to the boomers and the generation above them compared with about 5% for millennials. So if you want to move politics, or you want to move finance, it would probably be a good idea to have some older people on board, or so it seemed to me. Now, there's this conventional wisdom that people become more conservative as they age. They have more to protect or whatever it is. And maybe that's true, but we can't let it be true in this case. And I don't think that it needs to be true in this case, because these particular generations, the people in their 60s and 70s and 80s now, have a really, really interesting generational DNA, as it were. In their first act, they were around for this period of intense, interesting, social, cultural, political transformation. Uh, You know, the rise of the idea that women should play a full role in society, Uh, the apex in America of the civil rights movement and the expansion of the franchise, the voting franchise to everyone, Uh, the anti-war movement, the first Earth Day in 1970, which brought 20 million Americans into the street, 10% of the then population of the U.S., the biggest demonstration in American history. And it all, you know, it all worked. Within two or three years, we'd passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, which became the template for how every other country on Earth went about trying to deal with the environment. And what do you know? The air got cleaner and so did the water, you know? So, I mean, this was a... a period of of miracle working in a certain way, you know. Now, people may have taken all that for granted at a certain point. For whatever reason, the second act of this generation, with plenty of noble exceptions, may have been more devoted to consumerism than to citizenship, you know. Well, water under the bridge. Now people emerge into their third act with lots of resources, lots of skills acquired over a lifetime. Now they maybe have some time that they didn't have before and they've got kids or grandkids in most cases, which sharpens that sense of legacy of what the hell are we leaving behind, you know? And so we've found in the first few months of doing this, extraordinary desire among all sorts of older people to figure out a way to join in. Some of them are people who've done this their whole life. And some are people who've said, I've never done anything like this. And truthfully, I don't really feel, you know, culturally equipped to kind of join the youth protests and things, but I can do this, you know. And one of the things that's made it easier to organize is that there were um, that many of the cultural icons of that first act are still around now you're a young person so you can argue with me if you want thank you that's very kind Uh, you can (laughs) you can can (laughs) argue with me if you want but I will say, I think our generation produced the best music of all time. (laughs) And so it is really a pleasure to get to have Carol King and Bette Midler and Patti Smith and Neil Young and people like that working hard uh, to to help build this movement, you know. And people have responded in the the right spirit with a certain amount of self-deprecation. We just had a big demonstration outside the banks that are... uh, you know, funding the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, the youth were moving somewhat faster, but there was a big crowd of old people following along behind under a big banner that said, fossils against fossil fuels, you know. So uh, uh, we're doing all that we can. Um, And and I'm very curious and hopeful to see how this builds out over time.
0: I mean, as an observer... Um, and so probably eventually quite soon to be a <laughs> member of the third act, you know,
1: hopefully, right? Yeah, everybody's headed Everybody's headed our way,
0: you know. I think it seems really strategic because that contrast of, you know, which you describe in detail in your new book, The Flag, The Cross and The Station Wagon, where it's this idea of this sort of radical transformation, formative radical transformative childhood and early early twenties that people can draw back on in different ways. And, you know, as you say in the book, very clearly, let's not just be nostalgic. There are massive problems with the way in which patriotism, the church and the suburbs excluded people that they, that they, that they, in you know, Facilitated forms of racism and exclusion in in the states and every, and in other places too, like in Australia. But that that there are elements of that history that can be rekindled for to underpin a, a different kind of older years and a different kind of society
1: as we move forward. That's right. I mean, it's 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 quite understandable why people go around saying, "Okay, boomer," you know. But it's you know we probably need to reach a point where. We do enough that people are saying, okay, boomer, you know, thank you. And, and that's the job we have to figure out how to do to kind of move in that direction.
0: Yeah. To have a, you know, we, we have to have a sophisticated conversation across all forms of difference. In our society, and that includes intergenerational difference. That's not it dismissive. is. I will say
1: it's very interesting. I, I hadn't paid no much attention to this before, but it is interesting that the one group of people that people feel quite comfortable still you know, uh, disregarding or is old people, you know, uh, or, you know, saying things about that. I mean, you know, I occasionally have people, oh, well, it'll be a good thing when all you guys die, you know. And it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) It's like, I mean, I take your point, but... (laughs)
0: Yeah. I think that we do need a big conversation about how we talk about difference
1: that's more sophisticated. And hopefully maybe the third act brings that to bear. Maybe it'll help a little bit. But our main goal is not that. It's just to try and put some weight behind, as much weight as we can behind the young people who are doing great work.
0: Yeah. But also part of it is the third, this group, the third act taking responsibility for some of the harm that's being caused. You talk extensively in the book about the, the carbon suckage well,
1: there's a there's a huge set of debts, you know, like literal debts around race, because, you know, uh, we allowed inequality to get absurd, and around carbon. Uh, because, you know, if you're 60 now, you've been around for 85% or something of all the carbon that ever got poured into the atmosphere. And really, if you're 60, you knew what was going on for three quarters of your adult life, but it didn't really impinge very much on our... Uh, a way of life. So yes, there are debts to be paid, and happily, we have to some degree the some of the resources to pay them if we can bring ourselves to do it.
0: So my final question, Bill. This has been an extraordinary conversation. You know, you've been doing this for a long time, <laughs> right? Battling away for a long time. No discredit, like you've got a long time ago. I'm sure. But how do you? Keep going, you know it takes an enormous reserve of energy. I'm sure it's not always been easy, indeed, I know it's sometimes been hard. How do you keep it going and going and going as you as you try and seek change?
1: One of the key things is to find good playmates to be working with, and happily, I mean, I've been very lucky to have them all over the world, you know, and so every place in the world that I can think of, Uh, You know, I mean, I think about Australia, and so I immediately think about Charlie Wood and Blair Police and, you know, just some of the most extraordinary organizers I've ever met. And all those, you know, young women from the uh, Australia Youth Climate Coalition who are now, you know, grown up and have kids of their own and doing amazing things and, you know, on and on and on. And I I can do that exercise for pretty much any country you name if you want me to and so that's that really helps it doesn't mean that one doesn't get doesn't mean that one doesn't get depressed and despairing sometimes there's no way around that in this work but it does mean that there are um, people to pick you up and work with the other thing I'll just say is because I'm a writer and so on this is the most extraordinarily interesting challenge that there's ever been uh, there's no other thing that humans have ever encountered that requires us to deal with it on so many different ways and so many different levels. you know. And so to be taking on climate change, you need to have some working understanding of physics and chemistry. But more importantly, economics and political science and sociology and psychology and theology, and uh, you know, uh, on and on and on down a long list. So it's highly interesting in just the deepest possible way. And and part of that is that it seems like to me as if it's more or less a, a test. Of whether or not the big brain was a good idea or not, you know, it clearly it clearly can get us in a lot of trouble, and the question is, can it get us out of that trouble too? Probably, less the or is partly the big brain and partly the big heart that hopefully it's attached to in sufficient number of cases, and and it, you know, if we can bring figure out how to bring those things to bear, then we have a chance, and so that's really interesting work, you know, to try and see. So, uh, you know, at some level, I guess it's a burden to know too much about this and have to work on it all the time and stuff. And at some other level, it's an extraordinary honor to get to be, you know, engaged in the biggest question that humans have ever gotten to be engaged in.
0: It's a time to be alive. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you for sharing your insights. I know that this will be of great inspiration to the next ch- group of people who decide <laughs> to carve out the impossible and do
1: something completely bananas and hopefully change the world. Thank you for your work very much. I think this question of how we make change is extraordinarily important. Maybe the most important question. The tantalizing thing about climate change is we have the answers, really. We know what technologies and what policies and things we need to do. The question is whether we can actually manage to get them done in the short time that we have. And that's an open question. And we don't know the answer, which is what makes it <laughs> scary and interesting. But I think the thing that you're focusing on about how that change gets made is probably the central question. So thank you for focusing on it. Thank you.
0: And it's it, that's where my passion is, you know. It's like, it's nice to to feel that, yeah, I agree, this is a time to be alive to answer that question as well. Good. Thank good, you, good, Bill. Good. <laughs> have, have a good one. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walkerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners, so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au/backslash-policy-lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organizing school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Planning for your next trip?